Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I am your NBN host, Lavinia Stan, a professor of political science at St. Francis Xavier University in Canada. I'm talking today with Ryan Manucha. Do I uh, pronounce uh, uh, well? (laughs) Um, About the book he just published in 2022 entitled Booze, Cigarettes, and Constitutional Dustups. Canada's quest for interprovincial free trade. Ryan is currently a fellow of the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government at uh, San Francis Xavier University, which has facilitated this interview. Named for its champion and main fundraiser, former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and housed in a state-of-the-art uh, complex. <laughs> The Institute brings together public policy scholars from a variety of fields. It also offers an excellent undergraduate public policy program, the coordinator of which I was in 2019-2020. Welcome to New Books Network, Ryan. Thank you so much, Lavinia. It's such an honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for accepting this interview about your recent book, which was the 10th volume published by McGill Queens um, in collaboration with uh, the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government Studies um, and the uh, um, uh, the um, uh, volume is in a, uh, is featured in a series titled uh, Leadership, Public Policy and Governance uh, here at uh, uh, Centefx. Before we turn to the book, could you tell our listeners a bit about your academic trajectory for them to get a feeling of um, where you are coming from um, and um, what uh, brought you um, here today at this uh, particular um, step in your career? Absolutely. Yeah, it started um, back, I pursued undergraduate studies in economics at Yale University in the U.S. And there, uh, my studies really helped me understand um, the basic building block uh, uh, in terms of tooling set for policymakers when it comes to understanding the uh, rigorous uh, econometrics and economic theory. And while uh, I was there, I was blessed with opportunities to help with some research for professors and also some policy experience at the Ontario Securities Commission and at the Canadian Embassy in Washington, D.C., at the uh, within the Economic Trade Policy Branch. And so there I was really able to appreciate and learn um, a good deal about the um, the rigorous, you know, maths and, and theory that goes into uh, trade policy. And then after uh, economics uh, undergrad, I pursued a, a law degree at uh, Harvard Law School where I uh, dove into the world of international trade law 
and studied under uh, some very, uh, uh, very, uh, very knowledgeable professors who sort of showed me uh, the basics and more than the basics on international trade law and policy. Um, to, and because of those two experiences, I was able to combine uh, the economics and the law at, at once. <clears throat> and while I was at law school, that was where uh, it was a really interesting moment in Canadian history when I mean, we've had internal trade wars throughout post uh, our, our post confederate post confederation history, but it was Alberta. This was in 2018 or 2019, trying to get bitumen out to the west coast and British Columbia, saying no, uh, that's that's not what we want to allow. Essentially, blocking the movement of of this good bitumen out to the coast by way of pipeline, and in response, Alberta retaliated by curtail or attempting to and curtailing the sale of BC wine in Alberta liquor stores. And being a student of international trade law and being a student of international trade economics, I was like, "Oh, this is utterly destructive for the Canadian economy." And how is this even permissible within a single nation state? And that was the spark of my journey and a deep dive and exploration and study of internal trade law in Canada. And in uh, the study of internal trade law, or the study of internal trade, I should say, is extremely multidisciplinary. You've, you're looking at you know various components of law. You're looking at constitutional law, administrative law, international trade law, and then you know you also have to look at Canadian political history and economic history, and then also you have to bring together that that you know that uh, more empirical and uh, mathematical economics to help understand the uh, impact on trade flows and the costs to the Canadian economy, and not to mention a great deal of. Um, appreciation for the social and political forces at play um, because you know as much as we may pursue internal trade for maximal economic growth um, we may be also similarly or more concerned about things that uh, may run antithetical to uh, liberalized trade for example you know uh, environmental protection laws or, or uh, public public interest laws that curtail movement of goods or services for the you know for the public, um, may be important to us as well, not just maximal economic growth. So, so you are you are a Canadian. I sense that you are actually from Ontario. Is it uh, correct? <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, so your undergrad was in economics uh, in the U.S. Why, why the decision to go to the U.S. to study? Why not? Um, you know, pursue pursue an economics degree at the University of Toronto, for example. There were so many. There are so many incredible uh, programs in Canada. I think I was really excited to learn uh, in a different form. We might, you know, joke ourselves into thinking Canada and the U.S. are the same. They're, they're really not. And I, I really wanted to understand how the uh, how the U.S. Uh, you know, the, the psyche and, and the way that. Um, uh, the United States self-organizes and, and has built. And that was especially the case at law school where I came to appreciate how, you know, there we have, you know, the framers of con, uh, Confederation in 1867 in the U.S. They have the, you know, they call them the, the founding fathers in the late 1700s. And how did they conceive of a federal system? How did they conceive of um, importing uh their own contemporary value set into what was coming from the British and just understanding that like everything that the way that humans decide to self-organize really um, is so contextually determined and it's good to understand how it's done elsewhere. And because of that, you can then really appreciate how your own nation um, self-organizes. So I understand correctly that um, uh, both uh, in your economics uh, uh, studies and in your law degree, um, you looked uh, um, at Canadian uh, topics and uh, the, your professors were, uh, were you know, um, excited about, this, uh, about these topics. How is how is Canada as a as a topic of study for students for Canadian students in the U.S. How is it perceived? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely wanted to make sure I was learning a lot about the U.S. because uh, you know that's where their specialty is. They're able to sort of self reflect and think. But then you take what uh, what I mean. One example, one really interesting example was um, 
wonderful class I took under uh, Professor uh, Mark Tushnet on comparative constitutional law. And in that course, we explored the Canadian Constitution and a lot of how Canadian jurisprudence and the way that, you know, the Constitution Act 1867 and 1982 sort of frames Canada into being as sort of like a template or a model that could be used in, a, in certain respects and as like a as another way of constitutionalizing a country and the way that in this class the Canadian framework was put up and elevated and raised and praised was pretty thrilling uh, uh, so absolutely I think there's there's a certain there's a great deal of respect for especially at law school the, uh, the the Canadian legal system and uh you know, it's 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 different approaches. If we think about, you know, the drafters of Confederation in 1867, a lot of what they did was influenced because of the conflagration happening in the U.S., the Civil War. And a lot of those folks were saying, hey, how can we uh, frame our country to avoid the same, a similar situation from occurring here? Um, so there's always great uh, opportunity to cross-pollinate. Um, best in class uh, experiment. And I think one thing that really resonated from the U.S. experience was um, legislative and, you know, political and policy experimentation. You know, they like to think of themselves as 50 different laboratories of of testing. And it really plays out sort of seeing how 50 different systems under one federal framework can approach a similar issue and the various outcomes that come from it. So the topics that you are interested, uh, broadly speaking, you are interested in um, um, lie at the intersection of um, uh, trade, economics and law. Is this, uh, would you say that this is a good uh, characterization or would you want to elaborate on it? I'm at, uh, economics, the law and history, political science, it's it's so multifaceted. And I think what's so interesting is that um, you know, we haven't really thought of Canada as a domesticated version of the international trading system. Um, and we've realized over the course of, you know, especially the past 40 years, but, you know, more broadly speaking, let's say it's since Confederation, the upper limits of our economic union. And I think there's so much that Canada can learn from the way uh, that other nations sort of handle their internal markets and the way that, you know, international structures have arranged global markets and port that over for, you know, uh, for our own domestic learning. And why do we care about internal trade? Like internal trade is interesting, but why do we really care about it? You know, we cost of living and affordability, for example, to the extent that we have internal trade barriers that augment the cost of the goods and services you and I buy every day. um, That's important. And if we can, you know, study internal trade barriers and identify causes and seek solutions. I think that's that's really important for everyone. Um, if we care about the productivity of the Canadian economy, um, you know, Canada's uh, productivity is falling off a cliff uh, and is set to be one of the worst performers in the OECD um, very soon. And if we care about this and we care about national prosperity, you know, it's there's no one silver bullet, but I think a very important one is uh, efficient domestic markets. And if we uh, kind of perpetuate a system where we have provincial territorial fiefdoms and it's very protectionist and businesses can't be forced to compete and become stronger and, you know, we can, you can draw the, link, the causal linkages. I think th- that's what we really care about. So, you know, internal trade for, uh, domestically has a different flavor because we care about our collective prosperity. We all pay into a tax system and, and, you know, wear the same uniforms and, you know, fight for you know, one another, support each other with uh, PP&E during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we should think a little bit more carefully about our economic integration, too. So I uh, take it that uh, some very uh, urgent and important concerns are driving uh, um, your interest um, in um, in this topic, and this is the starting point, pretty much, of the book. Yeah, this is the foundation of the book. This this was the the question that you started. Um, uh, uh, you started uh, to explore at the very beginning, yeah? Uh, and I, I think you, you mentioned uh, uh, some of the ways in which uh, interprovincial trade is important for Canada. Um, but but um, if we were to compare ourselves with other 
with other federations, you would say that we are, you know, worst. We are we are erecting these walls uh, between provinces. These walls are thicker in Canada than in other uh, countries. Or what's your comparative uh, sense of um, um, inter federal um, trade? Um, in these countries, where does Canada stay um, um, among, in this ranking? You know, where where does it it? Yeah, a very valid question. Or, uh, and one thing that's so interesting is we again, I, lo- I love going back, like understanding internal trade. Now you really have to go back into the past. And so we look back at 1867 and the drafters of Confederation. They really ported over what was uh, a constitution from. Great Britain, which was for a unitary state, it wasn't didn't have, you know, uh, subnational governments, like provinces and territories. And so when you bring that over, and you hope that it applies in the same way, you can run into some problems of interpretation. And very, very early on, the judici- the judicial uh, count, uh, privy ca- the privy council in, in the UK, which was for the longest time our highest court until 1949. You know, we did uh, the, we had the Canadian Supreme Court, but you could you know the highest court of appeal was back to Britain, and um, they were very much in, uh, very cognizant of this how something unique had been created in Canada, and were very careful to protect provincial sovereignty, and that was something that threads through Canadian constitutional law. Um, very well up until, you know, let's call it like the mid to late 20th century. I think more more recently, we've drifted like, just totally looking at constitutional law, we've drifted into a zone of flexible federalism, where I think that, you know, the rise of the administrative and regulatory state is pretty, uh, can bring for some very complex regulatory regimes. And sometimes they interact with the jurisdiction of another level of government. And, you know, as we'll get into in this conversation, like, how do you manage that? And that, you know, especially when those can be the sources of trade barriers. But if we if back to your original question, like, you know, how do we compare against other countries? Um, Well, we can there are a couple you can compare Canada against, you know, other federal states. That's like a category. Um, But we can be more specific. We can say, how do you know, Australia is a good comparator. Um, It's Australia's got a similar economy, you know, like really driven by primary uh, commodities, um, you know, oil, gas, minerals. It's got that same British um, uh, heritage. It's got um, a a number of social uh, factors that that find overlap. There's a significant uh, 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 role of um, uh, for uh, so there's a a large urbanized population. Um, Both have uh, uh, have great um, exposed. They're both middle countries, greatly exposed to international trading patterns. And the way that Australia handled it is they legislated mutual recognition agreement into the fabric of their national uh, scheme, legislative schema. So whereas Canada in the early '90s adopted the approach of a of a international tr- of a domestic trade agreement. Australia went even farther in like saying, we're actually going to like give this the level of legislation. We're not just going to create a political agreement, which I think is really powerful. And they even have a national body called the Productivity Commission that goes out and sort of sources these trade, identifies them, raises them for consideration and draws focus and attention and political will. Um, Compared to, you know, the European Union and the European Union similarly has a much stronger approach towards internal trade barriers. There's a very strong philosophy of mutual recognition that runs through the way that uh, the European Union does business. And I think that's really, that's another model for Canada to sort of look at and see like, okay, what do the next 50 years look like for the economic union? I think the economic, uh, the European Union is a good guidepost. Um, And in the US, US is an interesting one. Obviously, it's got its own uniqueness. It doesn't have the same sort of, um, you know, uh, Commonwealth sort of setup. But it's also got um, a federal. It's a, also a federal state, but I think what distinguishes the U.S. in part is that it's got a, a much stricter judicial test for trade barriers internally, and I think that helps guard against, uh, a, a, to a greater degree, internal trade barriers than in Canada. So I think Australia and the European Union are very good, um, you know, t- uh, models for us to consider when we're considering comparative. Uh, um, states of internal trade 
this is this is a compelling uh, argument what you laid uh, here uh, i'm uh, i want to go uh, uh, back to the title and i just wonder um, are cigarettes and booze at the heart of interprovincial trade or this title is like a hook for the audience to um, um, become interested in the book. Yeah, let's explain. Let's explain to non-Canadian and Canadian listeners what does this trade cover? Oh, it's the uh, booze, cigarettes, 100%. You know, Canada's internal trade story is really found throughout the products that we really care about and things that didn't make it to that title, for example, include margarine, they include turkeys, they include a lot of booze, quite frankly, but eggs and chicken. It's all manner of goods, especially goods that uh, could have also made that list, but booze and cigarettes definitely turned heads. So, <laughs> um, And why do they matter? I think um, booze and cigarettes are subjects of, of uh, trade battles, domestic trade battles, because largely because governments derive a ton of revenue for their sale. And so where they can defend those markets, they are better off. And the most recent story of this was Gerard Cumeau, who, um, you know, his, 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 his travels from New Brunswick to Quebec to go buy cheaper beer in New Brunswick, saying, no, no, um, we've got a, uh, our, own skis, uh, our own system in place. We want you to buy booze domestically because they derive, you know, let's call it $40 million in, in HSD and 120, I could be wrong on these numbers. I'm just uh, instant recall here and something like $120 million in, in profit to the, to the, uh, to the uh, province, which is money that goes towards, you know, public health funding, education funding, like things that we really care about. So as much as we can be cynical, oh, this is just like a cash grab for the government at the same time. Yeah, that's a cash grab, but the cash is going towards like meaningful public public uh, services so like you, you can't you can't like ignore that um but uh so but it goes as far back as the first internal trade barrier case 1921 era of prohibition this time it wasn't so much about raising revenue but it was about you know <laughs> what was moral back then and uh you had the prohibition era uh folks who were the tito tattlers who didn't want the sale of boots uh you know moral purity issues and there were folks who did. And so, you know, using booze as a way to, you know, it, the, it, it was an internal trade barrier case, but it was, it was really using that provision to see if they could get their alcohol in, notwithstanding the uh, restrictions of, of temperance. Um, and uh, another instance, you know, 1940s Atlantic smoke shop case, uh, out in New Brunswick uh, about whether or not uh, a province was able to charge a sales tax on cigarettes. Like this was stuff that we, all, you and I like think about as like, it's it's expected like fully within, but you know, there were some in early Canada, a lot of things were still being figured out, including whether or not provinces were entitled to levying sales taxes. And so anyways, in that case, it was, really fascinating case that went all the way to the Privy Council in England and argued by a man who uh, had, you know, he was a well-known communist who was, uh, you know, had defended Ho Chi Minh in an extradition case. And um, here he is essentially like the side he was essentially arguing for was the side of let's call it big tobacco. They were trying to prevent these taxes from being layered on at the perimeter. And so like, it's an interesting side for him to take anyways. He was the lawyer on the case. Um, but it really is about the things that we care about. And they, they, they like, uh, we get margarine is another one, you know, margarine was invented in France in the 1800s to deal with a food crisis. And, uh, you have a ton of dairy farmers in South, Southwestern Ontario who, for whom margarine was a real threat to their dairying. So they were doing all they could in the late 1800s to essentially write it out of existence and they use the criminal prohibition powers to sort of say hey we're, we're not going to deal with this and people you can look at the debates back then there was a lot of arguments about health and safety but what it really was was you know um this is threatening the dairy industry and um this 
you know, margarine being sort of a manifestation of internal trade barriers, and it's, it represents local interests seeking protection. I mean, even until very recently, it was difficult, uh, if not impossible, to buy margarine in Quebec. And it had to be of a, a white color. You know, it couldn't even look attractive. It looked like lard. Um, so, yeah, 100%. It's such a rich history inside of our products, especially the ones that uh, are very uh, inel- have very inelastic demand curves if we pull the economic parlance out, too. So uh, let's be very spe- as specific as possible, because um, uh, when I, uh, uh, I have to mention that Ryan gave a talk here at CentFX, and I was quite amazed that... Uh, find out that uh, if I cross from Nova Scotia, to, uh, I'm a resident of Nova Scotia, and if I cross uh, the, the border to another province to buy, to buy, pretty much you are saying margarine, butter, booze, uh, cigarettes, uh, uh, timber, uh, furniture, uh, um, uh, cars, is that uh, also applying? Uh, I will have to pay uh, some extra or I won't be able to, to import in my, to bring back to my province certain products depending on the legislation yeah, or the choices made by the provincial government uh, where I'm residing. Is this, uh, is this the, what happens? That's exactly internal trade barriers. They used to be really evident, you know, a tariff, a customs duty. You would see border agents at the border of upper and lower Canada monitoring the passage of goods and, you know, trying to ensure that everyone, you know, in inter, like before 1867, there were a ton of intercolonial trade barriers. We don't see that anymore. You don't see, oh, you know, if you're trying to bring wine in from Quebec, it's a 7% tariff. That's that, first of all, that's not allowed. Um, but that's not the type of trade we're talking about really technical and and non-tariff trade barriers more generally. And so, you know, for Kumo, it was a prohibition on the re-entry into Quebec uh, with more than 12 bottles of of beer at the time. Uh, It can be even more subtle. Like that one was a bit of an an overt quantitative restriction, but, you know, it was kind of premised on public safety or, or, you know, whatever the argument they might have tried to raise. If, you know, like right now, another example, um, in order to, for a truck that's overweight or oversized to, to travel across every, every province needs its own permit. And, you know, if you're going from, you know, Nova Scotia to Alberta, that requires, I think like seven. And if you're going from Texas to Alberta, it's one, they don't require one in every state, you know, the inability for, you know, you have trailers, uh, in, in, uh, you know, the backs of trucks that they drag trailers and needing registration or needing to renew registration every time you enter into a new province. Another good example um, is the porting of qualification. If if you're a doctor and you've been licensed to practice in a particular province of of Canada, trying to port those qualifications over. And it's, you know, sometimes, oh, you know, if you do this test, if you pay that fee, but what Canada needs to recognize is like, Every one of those, anytime you introduce a friction to movement, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about here. We're not like these glaring, like border guards is not what, and, and the, if you talk to many, you know, economic actors, you say, Hey, you know, do you encounter trade barriers in your day to day? Oh, no, no, I don't, I don't see that. Um, but they'll say, okay, so if you try to move your, your, your tow, can you move your tow truck from, from Ontario to Quebec? Say, oh, well, I know it's, you know, it's exceeds the weight limit. Or, you know, can you, um, your, you, you produce meat out of your provincially regulated factory in Alberta? Can you get that over into Saskatchewan? You say, oh, actually, no, not without going through this, you know, federal abattoir. It's like not recognizing that what they're encountering is a trade barrier and sort of accepting it as a cost of goods. And the biggest thing that's surfacing is that it's in the data. The trade barriers are in the economic data. But folks on the ground don't use the vernacular of trade barriers when they discuss what they're encountering. They think of it as, you know, I don't know, just again, cost of business when and and for smaller businesses who can't afford to handle the compliance or the financial issues related to those those decisions like you know uh trying to bring your car over from from uh, british columbia to alberta if you already just had your inspection done why do you need to have your inspection done again in alberta like there's something about us being under one common citizenship that i think entitles us to a degree of 
you know, mutual recognition of, of the standards and the testing procedures undertaken in one province as satisfying those in another. Um, well said, well said. And uh, you bring all these examples and many more in your book, which is a very dense book with uh, no fewer than 15 uh, chapters. Could you please... Um, walk us uh, through your argument and uh, the way the chapters are building on each other for readers to understand uh, um, the, the various, uh, how, how you construct your arguments in these 15 chapters. Well, so I started, a lot of my early research in internal trade had to do with the jurisprudence that was coming out of this super new internal trade court called uh it's not doesn't have a name but it's it's the venue where disputes over canada's internal trade agreement are heard there have been 13 to date two that have gone on to appeal and there i was trying to discern what was going on and the case law that was unfolding and trying to help guide future panelists and judges on how to decide future cases but i realized like so much you know it a, law- a lawyer appreciates the origins of a law and, and, you know, understanding how we got to where we are now and the institutions that exist really require starting from the beginning. And that really comes from, in my book, the 1840s, because you need to understand the Constitution. And in order to understand the Constitution, you need to understand the people who were drafting it. What were their life experiences? What had they endured? And two big things relating to internal trade were the abrogation of the U.S. from the free trade agreement in 1866 and the repeal of imperial preferences by the British in the 1840s. So within everyone's lifetime who was party to drafting the Constitution had been massive shocks to Canadian trade flows. And so from there, we understand the Constitution, why it, how it exists. And then we follow the course of Canadian constitutional, political, legal history to the present day. And we understand, you know, we, we look at the case law in, you know, the butter and the cigarettes and the booze and the interpretations of the Constitution. And then, you know, overlaying all of this, the book delves into, okay, well, how was economic thinking evolving over this period of time? And how was Canadian federalism evolving over this period of time? And what becomes apparent is that by the time you get to the early 1990s, which is when we got our internal, our first internal trade agreement, it was sort of uh, stars had aligned. We'd had, and so in the book, I, I argue like it was at that point in time where it was possible to make the kind of decision to enter into an internal trade agreement as we did. And, you know, I discuss, you know, it was the right time politically, domestically, and abroad. There was the, rel- the necessary competence at federal and provincial governments. We'd just been through 10 rounds, uh, 10 years of nonstop negotiating international trade agreements. There was a great degree of capacity in uh, provincial and federal governments. And then once we establish the, the timeliness and the need for an internal trade agreement, I then bring the reader forward and I say, how has it worked? We've had 30 years of operation of this agreement. How has it worked? What's the diagnosis and what's what what's the trajectory? Where are we heading towards? And so using this this you know, time continuum, arguing like, okay, here is how the constitutional law is likely to evolve. And that's where I get to in my book. And I, and I have some predictions for the next 20, 30 years. But then I also underscore that a lot of the internal trade barrier resolution is going to be done through Canadian intergovernmental collaboration. And it's because of what we talked about earlier. The constitution gives so much power to the provinces and to the federal government and trade barriers can't be comprehensively understood until you have a mechanism that helps with that overlap. Um, and it's a really creative solution, you know, world's first inter, you know, wholly intergovernment, like what we, it, we, the only country who essentially took what the WTO has and it, it domesticated it. And so we're first in time on this. And there isn't a lot to learn from from other nation states. We can learn from the WTO. We can learn from bodies like NAFTA and Mercosur and the EU and the EC. Um, but we're learning a lot on our own. And so I think what I also argue is now is a good time to reflect. And given everything about, you know, our drive for, you know, our productivity falling off a map and, and um, domestic competition at level, the Competition Bureau recently came out with a stunning study that showed the absolute falling off of another uh, diminishment of, of competition within Canada. Um, so a, a lot of reasons to refocus and think about how internal trade um, is, is important for so many reasons. 
Thank you very much. Uh, this uh, this uh, was very good uh, to have this outline of your argument. You know, but now um, after you completed this project, what do you think are the main lessons that Canadians and possibly others uh, might draw from uh, from your book? It seems to me, for example, that although there is an argument there to be made that the government, uh, through all these um, the fees and uh, you know that they uh, they collect, uh, they can um, they can um, uh, cover other social programs. It seems to me that it's very cumbersome. Uh, it, it's it's very cumbersome for us, the ordinary people. Yeah. It, it might be good for the government, but it's another way of taxation in a way. It, it's another way of making payments to the government that might not be as glaring as, uh, you know, as your income tax when you have to, <laughs> when, it, when you know, when you know what the, or how much the government uh, uh, is, um, is taking out of your income, you know. So what, what would you say uh, are the most important lessons? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's, I mean, let's take another example. Workers' compensation. It is very difficult to get workers' comp coverage if you're not from that province. And so what does that do? Like, it makes it very difficult for companies to reallocate and redistribute labor workforces for, you know, folks who are, or, uh, you know, for opportunities that require that kind of workers' comp that you can't get under the current scheme. Like, overall, like, the matching, like, if I think of as an, as an economist, the matching of supply and demand is hindered when you have this structures like workers' comp or, or for example, um, you know, uh, occupational health safety d- uh, differences, the reg- differences in regulation, and meaning that like only the really big companies can afford to monitor and handle 13 different regimes. And so it really benefits large entrenched established players who, you know, may have justifiable reason to want to continue these kinds of barriers, right? It, it position, it strengthens their position. They're the only ones who can navigate the fairly complex terrain. Um, and, you know, you can get into the argument about like regulatory capture and, and um, the relationship between, uh, you know, stakeholders and the regulatory process to maintain you know, uh, competitive moats uh, through through uh, laws and rules. Um, I think what we what like some of the big lessons for us is that like the it's it's exhausting work. We're talking about like the reconciliation of divergent building codes of of construction of electrical codes, but if you take a you know this is where I think where Canada needs to go is like appreciating that like these it's internal trade barriers sort of have been re are redefined and we need to open our minds up to like what could constitute a hindrance for our overall prosperity and again you may want restriction that and i think any regime like australia's internal trade uh, uh mutual recognition act you know the way that the eu does it they always allow for legitimate policy reasons to prevent the application of liberalized mechanisms right like the you know in in australia they'll say oh you know if you're uh, certified for this occupation in in new south wales you sh- and you're you're certified you're able to practice that occupation in queensland and but they do say oh except where you know it, this might impact health safety or the environment like they they are mindful of legitimate policy reasons for wanting to impose restrictions but in those cases there's always guardrails in place so a Canadians need to we need to expand the dialogue and help other help industry and government appreciate how wide ranging and how subtle trade barriers can be and then also appreciate that reconciling them we're we're talking like with construction codes we started diverging along very different paths as early as the early 1900s due to like local events like fires floods whatever and then you know insurance companies would come along and say okay now you have to build your buildings this way or that way you know as a result of like local events and all of a sudden you then had very divergent building codes over the course of many decades as one contributing factor i'm sure there are others and so appreciating that like it does take time and sustained engagement to, you know, either, you know, to, to reconcile and, and to harmonize these different 
regimes, or if we're going to pursue this alternative model, which is called mutual recognition, where you know you say I'll I'll recognize the way that you guys do it and say if it's good, essentially if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for us. That one requires the building of trust because in order to do that, you kind of have to have confidence in the way that you know. I have to believe that the College of Teachers in Nova Scotia, you know, certifies and trains the uh, trains teachers to the same standard as I would expect Ontario. Once you hit those thresholds, it's very easy to have those levels of understanding. So, uh, and so the second point of this to summarize is um, it's a ver- it's a gradual and incremental and and um, uh, some could say taxing. Um, process, but it's worth it. And I can show one data point on why it's worth it. The reconciliation of building codes across the country, uh, you know, they've estimated the savings to be about a billion dollars a year. Like if you talk, if you like take your business or economic, you think about the return on investment and you can like really model out the costs to reconcile and weigh that against the benefits, the future benefits and and bring those discount those into the present. And the, the calculus will weigh in your favor and where it doesn't, you can reconsider, but you know, it, it's a lot of hard work, but, you know, Canadians are all the better for it. So uh, it seems to me that uh, your argument is uh, uh, for change, in favor of change, that that uh, um, in Canada, various actors need to, to realize that uh, interprovincial um, trade uh, uh, barriers, uh, um, at least some of them are more detrimental than you know, than um, helping uh, us. And then if change is necessary, would, which one would be the main actor um, responsible for this change? Because, uh, I mean, definitely the government uh, must regulate, yeah? But uh, it seems to me that, um, uh, at least for now, Corporations are uh, are heard by the government. Uh, the The government has its own interests at heart to co- to collect this uh, money. But uh, consumers, for example, or professionals, or maybe maybe the civil society or the society in general is uh, um, not uh, well organized. Or what What's your perspective mm-hmm. here? Yeah. Um, so I'd say two things. One is from um, th- the role of the federal government. Like if we think that like every single trade barrier costs p- that person one dollar, they're like, oh, one dollar, that's fine. And a province says, OK, there's 100 people dealing with a dollar bit trade barrier. That's OK. It's one hundred dollars. The federal government is the almost the only body in a position to say, oh, it's one hundred dollars in Ontario, one hundred dollars in Nova Scotia. hundred. They can they can collect and aggregate and, and sort of, uh, you know, pool um not pool but you know like you know uh, uh, yeah aggregate the costs spread across so many and use that and their central coordinating powers and their functions and their jurisdictional powers under the constitution to be able to uh drive at change that like a single province may not really see as acutely as the nation as a whole um so the nation like the federal government can coordinate efforts when like the costs, you know, disparately are small, but when, you know, taken together, they're a massive uh, ding to the economy. And so they're well positioned for that. The second thing more directly, to, I guess, to your question is, um, let's take the case study of both Canada on the reconciliation of construction of building codes and Australia in the arrival at um, a mutual recognition agreement. And even back in the early 90s. And even Canada in the arrival at an ag- agreement in, on internal trade in the early 90s. The most important factor, I think, was the role of industry and business groups at in- ensuring there was sustained pressure on political leaders. Because internal trade barriers always cross jurisdictional lines, they cross ministries, they, like, they touch on everyone with any amount of power. When you're trying to reduce an internal trade barrier, generally speaking, you are saying someone's turf is going to get smaller because we're trying to limit regulation. And that hurts. Like, And without that forcing function coming down from up top and that forcing function getting fueled by uh, uh, business stakeholders and business and industry, you don't have that sustained um um, momentum and and willingness to make change because it is so easy and preferred to not rock the boat. If I'm an internal trade official and I know that you know what I'm recommending is going to shrink 
the the uh you know the scope of like five other regulators with uh under various ministries i'm not so inclined to pursue that like i need that i'm i i you know that the political the political guidance and direction is going to become fundamental in that scenario Would you say that uh, COVID uh, impacted in any significant way uh, interprovincial uh, trade uh, barriers, or, or um, was uh, was it not so important? Yes, I think that it definitely really uh, hindered uh, internal trade liberalization. I would say, and one of the ways it did so was we started to see. Uh, subnational and ro- local governments, and even national governments, uh, but mostly subnational governments, um, essentially prefer local businesses. Even in, you know, notwithstanding the public procurement obligations under the Canadian Free Trade Agreement, um, sort of um, to maintain the health and the vibrancy of their businesses within their jurisdiction, starting to um, consider that. The other consideration was a lot of the regulatory folks who were uh, who are ordinarily tasked with matters regarding internal trade suddenly spent two and a half three years on um, covid related regulatory issues and so it really um, set us back by a number of years I think because either you know there's finite time and capacity and covid regulatory matters came to the top and so it so just internal trade issues kept dropping down uh, as a result of priorities so it did it did have an impact um, For example, I mean, we haven't seen the addition. So the, the Canada's governments maintain this list, this roster of um, internal tr- matters for resolution, uh, ma- trade barriers that are, you know, under consideration for resolution. And not a single one was added in the past calendar year. Um, and I think that uh, there are a number of reasons for that. But I think one is just that diverted attention um, to uh, uh, other things. Um If you were to um, reissue the book, uh, a second edition of the book, uh, would you change uh, anything? Would you would you add uh, more information? Would you um, give up uh, some arguments? What uh, what would uh, you say? Uh, what's uh, what's the plan here? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Really good question. I think that one of the things I probably would have done more of um, would have been um, perhaps like expand more kind of back to one of your questions, actually, how, how does this play out in other countries? Like, can you help us understand Canada in context? Like how does this work in Switzerland, in Brazil, in, you know, and, you know, the book speaks to it, but there doesn't, it doesn't have as big of a comparative lens. And so maybe this is, for you know uh you know uh, uh an annex or something but i think helpful contextualization of how canada does this and not just because i i talk about the constitutional scheme but like more broadly how does inter- the internal trade market stack up against uh our our global competitors our, our trading partners So uh, is this comparative study your new project Uh, or <laughs> what kind of projects do you have on your uh, on your desk uh, for the near future? Um, on my desk right now is um, a lot of research on um, so standard is like there's two ways that you can achieve trade. Uh, I'm looking at I'm looking at giving policymakers as much specific guidance on how to um, operationalize uh, trade liberalization. Like, how can we actually solve this in specific scenarios? Like, I think we need a bunch of case studies. We need a bunch of examples. We need like playbooks to run on like the hundreds and thousands of trade barriers that exist. And like, how how do we handle this? Um, because, uh, you know, the, it, the frameworks existed for 30 years. Canada hopefully exists for at least another, you know, many hundreds of years. Like, how can we, how can we, build a model that grows, you know, um, and how can we reform and improve the institutions that we have? So, you know, for example, I'm 
creating, you know, research and writing on how we can reform the dispute resolution mechanism or how we can um, bring better uh, understanding and, and use of other devices to liberalize trade. Um, how can we get creative about this, essentially? Uh, in the book, um, you, uh, you say that uh, you have uh, four brothers. Are you four brothers or <laughs> you are one of the four or you have four other brothers? <laughs> and my question is, uh, did they like the book? Did uh, your parents like the book? Uh, and uh, what would they, what did they say you should change in the book? Uh, did they make any suggestions or they provided some of the cases, some of the examples that uh, you are working with? Uh, yeah, I have three brothers and I actually have to give credit. Um, they uh, definitely... Uh, um gave a lot of constructive uh feedback and and, uh, and guidance um i think one thing that they were really uh helpful with was um uh you know ensuring that uh i <laughs> um i didn't go down rabbit holes and uh you know go insane during the writing process i'm sure you've had folks in your ecosystem who especially my wife who uh you know ensuring that you know you you know writing and research is it's a, it's a marathon not a sprint and uh so uh but also just you know feedback and, and guidance on the arguments the construction and and you know not trying to get too specific like you know stay at like a, a level where um, you're advocating for change and not getting too far into um, one particular issue. Like they kept pulling me back. Hey, what's the, bring me back to the story, right? Because I think what I was trying to do, what well, the gap in the literature when I was writing this um, was something that brought together the whole story in a multidisciplinary fashion. And um, so just re helping me remain true to that vision. That's great. Yeah. Our guest today at New Books Network was Ryan Manuchak, the author of Booze, Cigarettes, and Constitutional Dustups, Canada's Quest for Interprovincial Free Trade, published in 2022 by McGill Queen's Press. Thank you, and hope we'll talk again soon uh, with your uh, new book. Um, when it will be, it will get published. <laughs> Goodbye. See you, see you, Ryan. Goodbye. Thank you so much.